I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome back to Deresh Chai. This week we begin what's in the one year cycle is the Noah portion. And it goes from Genesis 6 verse 9 through the end of chapter 11 in Genesis. And we're going to begin looking at a cycle that's contained in the image. One of the things that was really impressed on me, and one of the things I mentioned in the introductory episode, was that when we look at life as it's expressed in our world, we see patterns. We see patterns all through things that are living, things that are moving, our planets, the stars, humans, animals, trees, everything has a pattern to it. When we start to look at things that aren't necessarily alive, like rocks or mountain ranges, in many of these cases of things that are not alive, we see chaos represented. And so when we're looking for life, when we're looking for life in the pages of scripture, we're going to be looking for patterns. If life is modeled in the method of patterns, then the author of life in the book that he has given us to explain what he's doing in the world and to teach us about himself and to teach us about ourselves is going to use patterns, right? Is my logic faulty there? I don't believe so. And I think that as we look at the many different ways that patterns express themselves in the pages of Scripture, we'll see that the patterns in Scripture are absolutely profound. They open up the pages of Scripture to a way of seeing things that may not have been present before. Back in episode 1, Genesis 1, we began to look at patterns through the repeat of words in close proximity to each other. The next week, Genesis 2 and 3, we looked at metaphors in the pages, because these metaphors provide patterns of meaning that we can then grasp hold of. We looked at word trains, which are multiple words used in sequence that develop an idea for us, and then it is repeated through the pages of Scripture to talk about that same idea. The following week, Genesis 4, we looked at puzzles. We looked at Scripture as a puzzle, defining pieces of the puzzle and then recognizing what's missing and what we can fit in place in those places. And then last episode, we looked at Scripture as a novel, not not as fiction, but as a novel where every word means something. And we looked at it specifically as though we were detectives. We were looking for clues within the pages. We were being extremely aware of what's there, and we were asking questions all the time, asking all sorts of questions to the text. And sometimes those questions come back with no relevant answer. Sometimes those questions, however, can lead us to a deeply profound truth. And that final method, the novel method, kind of combines all those previous methods into one. It's a way of taking everything else that we learned and kind of combining it together. Well, this week, as we start Noah, we're going to take that a step further because we're going to go beyond just a single chapter 
And we're actually going to look at the entire Noah cycle in the next five weeks as a series of patterns. It itself creates a pattern for us, one that we can view in Scripture occurring over and over again. We'll be using those previous methods from not just this week, but from here on out. There's so much we can learn using these methods to help develop the story of Noah, to help us to understand and see kind of what's going on in the background that we may miss. And I think doing so will leave us with a larger scale pattern then, that we can then apply in other places. So if we look at the story of Noah as though it were a textbook, if we try to look at it as, you know, just a story of animals going on a boat and a big flood coming along, we could perhaps get from it the mechanics of saving creatures from a future disaster. And indeed, some people have done this. This is a very common idea. Even governments have gone so far as to create Noah's Ark. There have been movies about governments creating a Noah's Ark type thing to save the planet from some sort of destruction. And if we look at Noah as simply a textbook, that's what we end up with, is some sort of a guide for how to escape future disaster. If we look at Noah as a biography, we see a righteous man who saved his family and saved humankind. He took the necessary steps in faith, started with faith, but it carried out through obedience. And that obedience saved the world, it saved mankind. And Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews 11, verse 7, that whole chapter of faith. It really picks up on this idea that Noah was a man of righteousness, a man of faith. But that faith then led to his obedience. The story of Noah it contains in it a series of themes that the rest of Scripture picks up on and makes reference to. And the story itself hyperlinks back to previous chapters. And when I say hyperlink, you know, you're familiar with the internet, right? The little blue words with the underline, you click on it and you go somewhere else. Scripture's full of these. They're called hyperlinks. And the other scholars have found these. There's, I'll go ahead and put up an image. It looks like a rainbow, but it's a recording of the explicit hyperlinks contained in the pages of Scripture. When I say explicit, it's the repeat of a word or the quoting of some other Scripture back and forth. And it draws lines between those and then colorizes those from those that are very close to those that are super far apart from each other. As you can see, it creates a beautiful rainbow, which is kind of fitting because we're in the story of Noah, which is when the rainbow is introduced. We won't see that for a couple weeks yet, but it just shows you the vast array, the, the first hyperlink document in the existence of mankind. It's, it's so mind-boggling. And this image it leaves out many hyperlinks. There's a ton of hyperlinks in the pages the metaphorical hyperlinks, the word train hyperlinks, all of these other hyperlinks that we're trying to dig into are completely left out of this image. Genesis chapter 6 through 11 contains so many hyperlinks in it. And it hyperlinks not just to future passages, but it hyperlinks to those previous five chapters that we just went through. And it's a huge narrative. There's so much contained in it. And we get the cycle of the course of history as we examine the Noah cycle. So we're going to dig into this. Let's go ahead and open the pages of Scripture. Genesis 6, verse 9 is where we'll begin. And let's dig into the pages and let's start using these skills that we're building to try to discover what it is in the pages of Scripture that is really trying to say. What more could it be saying, I should say? Not, not that I'm trying to get to the interpretation, but how can we extrapolate further into new realms of understanding? 
So let's go ahead and read Genesis 6, 9 through the end of chapter 7. Genesis 6, I'm actually going to start in verse 8, uh, simply because it provides a good foundation for everything else that goes on. So Genesis 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Hashem. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with Elohim. And Noah brought forth three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. And the earth was corrupt before Elohim, and the earth was filled with violence. And Elohim looked upon the earth and saw that it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And Elohim said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And see, I am going to destroy them from the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, and cover inside and outside with a covering. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is three hundred cubits, its width fifty cubits, its height thirty cubits. Make a window for the ark, and complete it to a cubit from above. And set the door of the ark in its side, and make it with lower, second, and third decks. And see, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under the heavens. All that is on the earth is to die. And I shall establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of all the living of all flesh, two of each, you are to bring into the ark to keep them alive with you, a male and a female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the cattle after their kind, and of all the creeping creatures of the ground after their kind, two of each are to come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take of all food that is eaten and gather it to yourselves, and it shall be food for you and for them. And Noah did according to all that Elohim commanded him, so he did. And Hashem said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in all this generation. Of all the clean beasts, take with you seven pairs, a male and his female. Of all the beasts that are unclean, a male and his female. And of the birds of the heavens, seven pairs, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days I am sending rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and shall wipe from the face of the earth all that stand that I created. And Noach did according to all that Hashem commanded him. Now Noach was six hundred years old when the flood waters were on the earth, and Noach and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of the clean beasts and of the beasts that are unclean, and of birds and of all that creep on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noach, male and female, as Elohim had commanded Noah. And it came to be, after seven days, that the waters of the flood were on the earth, in the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second new moon, the seventeenth day of the new moon. On that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. And on that same day Noah and Shem and Ham and Yafet, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and, and the three wives of his sons with them, went into the ark. They and every life form after its kind, and every beast after its kind, and every creeping creature that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh in which is the breath of life. And those going in, male and female of all flesh, went in as Elohim had commanded him, and Hashem shut them in. And the flood water was on the earth forty days, and the waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And the waters were mighty and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters were exceedingly mighty on the earth, and all the high mountains under all the heavens were covered. 
The water became mighty, fifteen cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died, the creeping creature on the earth, the bird and cattle and beasts and every swarming creature that swarmed on the earth, and all mankind, all in whose nostrils was the breath and spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he wiped off all that stand, which were on the face of the ground, both man and beast, creeping creature and bird of the heavens. And they were wiped off from the earth, and only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. And the waters were mighty on the earth, one hundred and fifty days. All right, well, there's a ton going on in this section of scripture. So much to consider, and really, there's not enough time to cover it all. I'm trying to keep these episodes to around an hour, and there's just not enough time in an hour to cover everything that's in that chapter. So let's dig into what we can find here, and rather than reinvent the wheel, let's start pulling the thread that we looked at earlier, Hebrews 11.7. The author of Hebrews calls on Noah, and it puts him in this hall of faith. And it says, By faith Noah, having been warned of what was yet unseen, having feared, prepared the ark to save his house, through which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. This idea of Noah using faith to power his obedience is a topic that's everywhere in scripture from the beginning of the end. And it's actually one that I closed with last week. Noah found grace. Why did Noah find grace? Why was he the one given the opportunity to exercise his faith? Well, we're told at the very beginning of this portion of this chapter, and it says that Noah was righteous. He was perfect in his generations. What that means, we're not really sure. The word generations doesn't necessarily mean lineage in Hebrew. It can mean history. He had walked perfectly before God. In fact, that's the next phrase, is he walked with God. So these three things together, combined together, give us a picture of a man who is righteous. That phrase, walked with God, that's a phrase that we've already seen in Scripture. And it's an idea we've seen in Scripture several times already. But the only other time in Scripture that that exact phrase is used, walked with God, is last week in Genesis 5.24, when it's talking about Enoch. It says that he walked with God. So Enoch and Noah, they're kind of these pictures of each other. It's a, a description of one who is righteous, is one who walks with God. And those three words, being righteous, being perfect in your generations, and walking with God, they opened up this whole world of comparison now that we can look to. They define those who are in relationship with God. Go back to Hebrews 11 and look through it and consider it again. The list of those men and women who had found favor with God. Many of them are recounted as people who had walked with God. Now, it's not doesn't use that exact phrase, walked with God, but it recounts them walking with God. In some ways, even if it's not that exact phrase from Genesis 6 and Genesis 5. We know that Adam walked with God. He walked with God in the cool of the day, right? It was only after his sin that he no longer walked with God. He hid himself from God when God went walking in Genesis 3.8. Abraham walked with God. Genesis 17.1 specifically talks about that. Isaac and Jacob both walked with God. Genesis 48.15 both talk of Isaac and Jacob walking with God. So all three of the patriarchs, Adam, Noah, Enoch, so far. Moses and all of Israel walked with God. Leviticus 26.12 says that. And we ourselves are called to walk with God in Micah 6.8. But this this phrase, this idea, isn't simply an Old Testament phrase. It's in the New Testament as well. Second Corinthians 6.16, as an example, we are called to walk with God. And walking with God, we can understand that as an idiom. An idiom is a metaphorical figure of speech. 
when we say something that we don't really mean. If I were to say someone's that two people slept together, you get an idea of something going on more than just them lying in bed and closing their eyes and losing consciousness for a while, don't you? That's an idiom. And that metaphor, it's not limited to the idea of simply walking with God. Because that metaphor morphs and shifts in many ways. It's, it's applied through scripture and it takes on a life of its own, if you will. Uh, it carries on in phrases such as the narrow path, the light unto my path, I am the way. All of these ideas of life being a journey and you're walking along in your life and so on and so forth all call on this idea of walking with God. Frankly, I could spend the entire hour just simply talking about this idiom, going through various uses of it. It's a fascinating idea. It's a fascinating idiom to really sink your teeth into and to see it used in Scripture in the many ways that it is used. I'm not going to do that, though, because there's so much else that we have to cover in this topic. As I said, there's a ton here. Do some work on your own. I highly recommend that. Take some time and do some research. Practice these tools. As you learn to use these tools, you'll learn to read the Bible in ways that it's probably been locked to you before. And much of what it has to say will just come alive on the pages for you. So already in this first verse of this Parsha, we've had a major detour back to a previous chapter and a pointer back to an even further back chapter and a pointer to much that is yet to come, characters that we have yet to see. So I'm going to move on or I'll really get nowhere. Continuing on in verse 11, we read that the earth was corrupt and that Hebrew word is shechat and we read that the earth was filled with the violence, and that's the Hebrew word Hamas. Yes, that is the same name as the Palestinian terrorist organization, Hamas. Later, we're told that God looked upon all that was corrupt, and all the flesh had corrupted itself. Again, that word Shechat being used. In verse 13, God pronounces his judgment on the earth, and he says, because the earth is filled with violence, with Hamas, through all flesh, I'm going to destroy them. There's an issue in that translation, though, because the word translated as destroy is that word shechat that we just talked about. It's the word for corruption. The earth was shechat. All flesh was shechat. And so God is going to shechat all flesh from the earth. That's pretty cool, right? We get that, we get to use our Genesis 1 tool here, the repeated words in close proximity. And it introduces us to something that we'll read more of later in scripture. God gives men their deepest desires. The way that they walk out in the world, God will visit it back on them. He'll give them the fullest measure of what they want. Uh, some have kind of taken this idea and given it the name karma. But if you look into Hinduism and actually do research on the roots and the, the origins of karma, that's a whole point system in which a person is trying to get to zero. So if you've done too much good, you want to do some bad to get back to zero. And if you can get to zero in your lifetime, when you by the time you die, if you're at zero, you don't get reborn and you can move on to the next phase of life. That is not at all what the Bible talks about at all. Now, the simplified idea of the way that you act is what is visited back on you. It's taken on that term karma, but it's really something that we see in scripture all throughout. And he who lives by the sword will die by the sword, right? And that's just one of dozens and dozens of examples of scriptures where this idea is reflected. One of the things we'll learn as we go through and what we'll see is that 
the God of the Bible is a giving God. He will give you what you want. Now, he won't give you what you intellectually want. He'll give you what your actions put out there as what you want. And we see this in many ways. Uh, the scripture is filled with men who act in various ways and then have their own failures visited back on them. Men of violence who then have violence visited on them. Men of greed who are then drowned by their greed. Men of deception who are then taken prey by deceivers. And so many more. There, there's idea is all through. The way that we walk in the world, there's that phrase again, there's that idiom, the way that we walk in the world will define what we see in the world, what we receive from God in the world. There's a way to escape that, though. In the Hindu idea, there's a way to get back to that zero place, if we were to use that idea to get there. And that's repentance. In repentance, all that you've done wrong, all that bad karma, all that evil that you've done in the world, in God's eyes, it will clear you. It will not, however, clear you from the consequences of those actions. David's a good example. David, who took a man's wife and then ended up killing that man, had a son who then took one of his daughters. Yeah, incest in King David's house. And then another son who killed that son. And then that other son, Absalom, then staged a civil war and a coup to try to unseat David. And then when he got into power, which he did get into power, he took all of David's wives and slept with them. The karma, the action that David had taken, it was a way of not walking with God, was then visited upon him later in life, even though he repented. He was clear before God's eyes when he repented, but that that flow of history wasn't interrupted. And that's something we really need to learn. We can repent all we want, but our history is still there. It still exists, and it will still come back and visit us. That's something we'll dig into a lot more later on. But we need to understand that repentance does clear you before God. It does not clear you from the results of your actions in the world. So, continuing on, God tells Noah to build him an ark, and he gives him instructions. It's a bit off topic for a second, but there's been a debate going on about what exactly is gopher wood. It's been going on for centuries, millennia, since people have forgotten what gopher wood was, in fact. I have an opinion on this, and I'm going to share that with you, but just understand it's an opinion. But my opinion is that gopher wood is a type of plywood. Thin sheets of wood glued together and then pitched inside and out. Get it? You get the pitch in and out, putting the sheets together. Makes it super strong, makes it pliable and watertight. Our English word wafer actually comes from the French word gopher, which is thought to have come from another non-Hebrew word of unknown ancient origin. In the Middle East today, in some Aramaic-speaking countries, gopher wood is actually slang for plywood. You go to the lumber store, you want some plywood, you ask for the gopher wood. It's not the, it's slang. It's not in a dictionary. I've heard stories of people in the Middle East talking to Arabs and hearing this word out of their mouth when they're talking about plywood. Again, it's just stories of just some connections I've made based on some very loose facts. It's not something that really matters. But I think it's cool. <laughs> Noah, Noah made plywood. Hey, isn't that neat? 
That was free. Uh, I'll let you have that one for free. So the rest of the structure that's described is interesting in that dimensions are given for the arc. And those dimensions have been demonstrated over and over again to be the absolutely most stable dimensions for a watercraft, especially one that's expecting high seas. You can nearly tip the entire thing over and it will settle back down to what it was. Wouldn't be a fun ride, that's for sure, but it wouldn't tip. And that's the key. What's really interesting, though, is if you take the dimensions of the Ark and look at the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant and the dimensions of the Tabernacle and so on and so forth, these other dimensions described in Scripture, they have the same ratios to them. Their length and width, the, the ratios of those are the same, and they're all based off of a ratio that we see in nature, repeated all over the place. 1.618, it's called the Phi Ratio, the Golden Ratio. It's in my hand. It's in my face. It's in your hands and face. It's in your entire body. It is the ratio, the Fibonacci sequence is based off of it in whole numbers, where the phi ratio is not in whole numbers. It's everywhere in nature. You just step outside and look at a tree, you'll see the phi ratio. Look at a cat, look at a frog, you'll see it. It's everywhere. Golden ratio used in art, the paintings that we look at, that we consider beautiful without really knowing why one painting is better than the other. It's usually because that artist has captured the golden ratio in one form or another. It's simply profound that the art is using this ratio, but then later the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant are using the ratio that is the building blocks for life. Very cool. So some of each kind of animal was to be brought into the Ark to preserve life in this cataclysmic flood. A remnant of all things was to be preserved. The word kind, mean, is a word that could point us back to Genesis 1, because remember, Genesis 1 started to create fish and birds, and they reproduced after their kind, and on the sixth day, men and, and beast, and they reproduced after their kind, and even on the third day, plants that reproduced after their kind. That word mean is all through that chapter. It's used so many times there. So we see it several times in this chapter. Could it be a pointer back to Genesis 1? Maybe, but we really don't have enough data to confirm that it is a solid pointer back. So let's continue on and see what we can find. Verse 6, Noah and his family and, his, and the animals go into the ark, and seven days later, the flood waters are on the earth. Well, seven days. Where have we seen seven days before? Yeah, that's right, Genesis 1. Hmm, so we've got two potential pointers now. Still kind of loose. Let's continue on. In verse 11, it talks about the flood beginning on the earth. And the flood begins with water falling from the sky and water coming up from the ground. Here we go again. There's something else. Do you remember that in Genesis, Genesis 1? Do you remember water above and water below being split? Only this time it's not split. It's being joined. Hmm. Interesting. Let's continue on. Verse 17. The flood was on the earth 40 days and the water lifted the ark until... Only water was left on the earth. There's no dry ground. Again, we're getting a reverse of Genesis 1 with the third day where the water and the land were split from each other. The water receded and the dry land appeared. Now the water is going back up and the dry land is disappearing. So no dry land at all. Again, we're pinging Genesis 1. All of these things now, we have enough now that we can confirm that there is a word train going on in this chapter, pointing us back to the events of Genesis 1. And there's something in this comparison that we should see, because it's not always a parallel. Sometimes it's a contradiction. It's happening in a different way. And that can teach us something. Verse 21, all flesh died. 
everything in which was the breath of life. Again, the breath of life was something that God breathed into the creatures. Birds, beasts, mankind, they all were given the breath of life. And then everything was destroyed. The picture we're left with at the end of the chapter is of a world where there's only water, there's only sea, and there's only day or night. Only the bare minimum of creation is left. Your mind should be a buzz at this point. What was it that we just read in Noah, in the story of Noah? What was that? The waters above and the waters below joined together. The dry land swallowed by waters. All things in which God gave the breath of life had that breath of life revoked. This chapter is describing an act of uncreation. Everything that God did in Genesis 1 is being reversed in his judgment. The things that God gave to mankind, the realms that he created to support life, were being revoked. They were being turned back on themselves. What's really key is those things that were separated apart are now being joined back together. Remember, back in Genesis 1, there was a lot of separation going on, right? Separating the waters and the water, separating the land from the sea, separating the days and the nights, separating birds and fish, separating... It was just constant separation, 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 separation. All of it to create places of order where things could live, where life could exist. But now all of that separation was being reversed. Genesis 1-7 was being reversed. Genesis 1-9 was being reversed. Genesis 1-24 and chapter 2, verse 7 were being reversed. However, a remnant was being saved according to its kind. Genesis 1-24 was being upheld, the kinds of creatures being separated. And we've talked in previous episodes about how the order of creation, how creation was imposed and enacted, the methodology of creation was through separation. Light and dark separated, waters above and below, land, sea, dry, day, night, birds, fish, man, beast, and that seventh day from all of the previous days. Every single day of creation features separation. In that separation, we see that the creation process isn't about separation, but it's about organization. It's a process in which order is brought to chaos. In the flood, God reverses the order and allows chaos to reign. The chaotic floodwaters, that's a theme that you see through all ancient cultures. Waters, oceans, large bodies of water specifically are chaos. They are a symbol of chaos. Ancient literature, in most of the creation narratives from other religions, there was a chaotic waters, and in the midst of that water was a water beast, some sort of water monster that the god of creation would then have to fight and defeat in order to create the world. Heck, even today, as we look out into the world, we like to think that we know about our world, but 70% of our world is water, and only 20% of that water has actually been explored. The vast majority of our planet, we still know nothing about. They're constantly finding new creatures that they didn't know existed, or creatures that they thought were extinct, but are still alive in the waters. The water, even with our technology, the chaotic waters are still separated from us. They're foreign, they're alien to us. The judgment perpetrated on mankind, if it was 
accomplished through the joining together of things that shouldn't be joined? What process was used to save those who were brought through that? They were separated. Once again, we see the act of life, the act of continuing life, the act of creating a place for life to exist, occurs through a separation. The things that God chose to save were organized, gathered by kind. Even in the case of Noah, the humans were gathered from his kind, his family, and then brought together and separated from everything else. Can this perhaps inform us of what the world was like before the flood? If in the flood God is visiting corruption on the world, and that's what we read, the Shechat, right? Humans had Shechatted the world, the world was Shechat, and so now God was going to Shechat the world, right? So if God was visiting this corruption that humans had enacted upon the world, and he did so by joining together things which were not meant to be joined, what can that tell us about the things that may have precipitated this judgment? Was order descending into chaos at the time of Noah? Were lines that were not meant to be crossed becoming commonplace to cross? This is the picture we get in Genesis 6 that we looked at last episode. The kind of sons of God mixed with the kind of daughters of men, which created some sort of chaotic being, which is then the antithesis of God, the enemy of God. So just how was mankind corrupt back in Genesis 6, Genesis 7? We're not told specifically. We're not even given examples here in Genesis. We are told simply that violence filled the earth, which is a callback to the line of Cain, who were industrializing violence, and that the earth was itself corrupt. And so corruption was being visited on the earth, and that was being done through an act of uncreation. And this took the form of joining together things that were meant to be separate. So based on this, what can we learn about corruption from Genesis 7 and Genesis 6? The joining together of things that should not be joined, the joining together of things that prohibit life, are not of God. It's that simple. Scripture's full of examples of this. If we look to the tabernacle in Exodus we see that there are several things that were reserved specifically for the priests to do, to have, to make. And no one else was allowed to have that. And this joining, each of these was a mixing together of things that were to remain unmixed. Exodus 30 verse 33 speaks of the holy anointing oil, the ingredients of which were not to be mixed by just anyone. Exodus 30 verse 38, the same way, the incense that was burned before God. Ingredients that weren't to be mixed by just anyone. It was reserved for the priests. If we look in Exodus 28, 6, we'll see that the priestly garments were a mixture of wool and linen. But in Deuteronomy 22, 11, wool and linen were not to be mixed by the layman. So they were allowed to be mixed only by those who had been granted the role to mix those things. The mixing in this case isn't so much the items themselves that are being mixed. And that's the key. We usually get caught up in the items being mixed, being the deal. But that's not at all. What's being described here is a mixing of the roles that God has given to men. 
those who mixed the holy anointing oil and mixed the incense and mixed wool and linen, they were taking for themselves the role of a priest that was not granted to them. That's the mixing. It's the kinds mixing together, if you will. The layman trying to take for himself what wasn't his, something from Genesis 3. Perhaps we can look to the story of the rebellion of Korah, number 16, the mixing of kinds, of him trying to seize that role. But then there's also these men who wish to be priests, who bring incense pans out and burn incense before God. What happens to them? Look it up. It's not pretty. So there's other ways of mixing, though, that God prohibits. Example, Exodus 20, verse 15, forbids the mixing of my property with your property. Don't steal. That's really what he's saying, is don't take someone else's property and incorporate it into yours. You're mixing something that doesn't belong to you. If we look just one verse earlier, Exodus 20, verse 14, do not commit adultery. Do not mix your covenant partners. Do not take someone else's covenant partner to yourself. Do not engage in an act of covenant partnership with someone who is not that covenant partner. Leviticus 18.22, the sexes, the male and female that were separated in Genesis chapter 1, those being mixed together in a way that does not produce life. Leviticus 18.23, man and animal mixing together. That's forbidden. Leviticus 10.10, the holy and the profane, the clean and the unclean should not be mixed. Deuteronomy 12, 29-31, mixing the practices of the nations in worshiping the God of Israel. Deuteronomy 32, 8, the mixing of nation-states, which God had separated. Each of those things are things that God has separated from each other, and they provide an example of what's being spoken of here. Things that God has separated should remain separate. How does this apply to our modern life? I'm sure you can figure that out for yourself. Just consider it. I bet you could write a long list, pages long, of ways in which our society is mixing things that should remain separate. Just take some time. Pause the video. Get out a pen and paper. Write down things in our world that are being mixed. Mixed by science, mixed by society, mixed by culture even mixed by various religions, mixed within religions. Doing that is not of God. What God has separated is to remain separate, and what God has joined is to remain joined. And that introduces this topic that we're going to explore in much greater detail later, and that's the topic of holiness. A simple definition of holiness is separateness, something that is set apart from other things. Holiness and practice in our lives is a recognition and a practice of the separation of the things that God has separated. So let's ask ourselves a question. Do I want God to treat me in the same way that I treat his creation? Because that's what God does to the people of the earth in Genesis 6. He treats them in the way that they are acting. You want to mix things together? Okay, here you go. Let's mix things together. See how you like it. Oh, you don't like that? Why not? Am I, in my life, joining something that should not be joined? Am I breaking something that should be joined? What if God did the same thing to me, to my life? 
That's what God did for the people in Noah's day. Let that sink in for a minute. Think on that. That's absolutely profound. On the flip side, though, holiness is found in the act of creating and keeping unity in those things that God has joined. We see this also here in Genesis chapter 6. The kinds of animals, the male and the female of the animals, the families of Noah, they were all joined together. They were brought together and made one in unity. This is the propagation of kinds that we talked about last week, not the mixing of kinds. Matthew 19.6, Yeshua speaks of a man and a woman who are married. They are joined in covenant. They are together. They are one now. That's an idea we saw back in Genesis 2. Cleaving. Unity among people. And that unity is something that we need to realize in the body of Messiah as well. Ephesians 4.3 speaks of a unity in spirit and a bond of peace between brothers. What makes us brothers? Yeshua. What's the minimum requirements for entering into that body of brothers? Look to Acts 15. Those are the minimum requirements one must meet to enter into the body of Yeshua. Anything else, that's up to the individual. They need to learn. They need to grow. But that's up to them, and it's up to them and God in relationship. Psalm 133 says how great it is for brothers to dwell in unity. It's like oil flowing down the beard of Aaron. Not this Aaron. Aaron, the high priest. When was it that oil flowed down the beard of Aaron? When he was ordained as priest. Brothers dwelling in unity are like people being ordained for service to God. (laughs) That is is awesome in my mind. That's just so cool. Can we find this kind of unity among the believers of Messiah and the God of Israel? This is something I mentioned last week. Judgment itself is not to be feared by believers. Judgment is a side effect of justice. Without judgment, there can be no justice. And justice was the final part of God's character that he declared to Moses in Exodus 34. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Go back and read that. That last characteristic that he described after his grace and his compassion and his mercy and his loving kindness and his patience was justice. It is there in equal measure with all of the others. God has all of these qualities, but it's his judgment that allowed God to separate the elements in the first place. If God didn't judge the waters above from the waters below and judge that there was a space needed between them for men, there would be no men. How could he have possibly known to separate water from land, bird from fish, beast from man, unless he first intimately understood and judged properly the nature of each thing. Judgment is not to be feared. It really isn't. Judgment from God is not to be feared. I'm going to qualify that. Unless you're worthy of being judged. Now that should scare us all. Because we can all look back in our lives and look at ways in which we have joined together things that should be separate. 
We'll come back to that. So judgment itself is not to be feared, but it's also not something that should be actively sought out on others. We must always remember that if we're calling judgment to come and to be passed on others, it will start with us first. First Peter 4.17, God will judge his house first. So before you go calling on judgment for people outside, people you don't like, people who are different than you, you better be absolutely sure that you're right before God. Because God's judgment will come to you first, and it is not a pleasant thing to be under judgment from God. But wait a minute, judgment's not to be feared. Ha <laughs> there's the catch. Being under judgment does not mean being subject to wrath and condemnation. I need to clarify this some, because that could be totally taken out of context. We have to get over this idea that judgment is all bad. Noah was judged as righteous, perfect in his generations. It was this judgment on Noah that made him suitable as the means of salvation for the world. In the same way, we too, every single person has to pass under judgment of some sort. For the believer, that means that the judgment begins the moment we accept Yeshua, the moment we accept his sacrifice. In that moment, we enter into judgment with ourselves, and we enter into judgment with of our sins. We pass under that judgment of God, and all that is due us passes to that perfect lamb who never deserved judgment, but who took it anyway. And it's in that moment that we too receive grace and we become judged as righteous and perfect in our history because all of it is set back to zero. Do we receive this grace because of our own merits, because of something in ourselves that recommends us to God? Not at all. We receive this grace and we receive this righteousness and justice all perfectly mixed together. Because of the one who took that judgment on himself, though he didn't deserve it. I call him Yeshua. Many other people call him Jesus. It doesn't matter what you call him. He came to the earth. He lived perfectly. He took our sins. He died. And he became that sacrifice for us. He became that judgment for us. So that we might identify with him in that judgment. And by so passing under God's judgment through him, we can be free of judgment in the future. That moment that we initially accept Yeshua, we identify with his death. He becomes that ark for us to carry us through the judgment of the world and into a new world that's on the other side. A new world we'll talk about next week. And that is the judgment for the believer. There's a second judgment that comes after this judgment, though. And that's the judgment on the world. When we take Yeshua's judgment on ourselves and we begin to operate in a manner that's similar to his, right? We we become the image of Messiah. We become his body. We begin to act his ways out into the world. When you do this, you'll receive judgment from those who are still in the world. This world whose ways we have abandoned. We've stopped seeking the things that the world wants. And we've begun to seek the kingdom of God. Once we take on this image of Messiah, we become the able 
to the cane of the world, and that world will seek to destroy those who break free from its clutches. Just as a lobster in a pot, as the water is going up, if another lobster attempts to escape, the group that's left will pull the one back. The world will seek to do that to those who escape the world, those who have taken on that judgment already. The scripture speaks of this in a multitude of ways. I'm not going to read these. I'm going to give you a list. Go look them up. And those, again, are just the beginning. The idea permeates scripture. It seeps into all of the pages. Psalm 11, verse 2. Psalm 37, 32. Isaiah 59, 15. Jeremiah 11, 19. Amos 5, 10. Luke 21, 12. John 15 verses 18 through 19, Revelation 12, 13, and Revelation 17, verse 6. The fact of the matter is that every single person who watches this video, every single person who draws breath, whether you believe in Yeshua or not, you're going to be judged. You've got two paths before you, a path of life and a path of death. Seek the path of life, right? What is that path of life? The path of life is the one that I just talked about. The one where you take the judgment now. And in so doing, you begin to be judged by those around you. Or you can take the other path. You can avoid God's judgment now. You can avoid the judgment from the world. But in the end, you'll be judged as one who pursued death. You'll fall into that future judgment, like the people in the days of Noah, who were judged and found wanting. And those who had combined the things that should be separate, who had put together the the elements of creation, those different things, and had, in so doing, corrupted themselves and corrupted the world around them. That choice is yours. That's not something anyone else can make for you. That first step, if you take that first step, you will bring yourself under judgment while you still live in this flesh. You can live in this life, and you will be subject to judgment until the day you take your last breath and go back to sleep. Or you can take the easy way. You don't have to be judged now. You can live easy, and you can be accepted by all of those around you. And so doing you will come under that later judgment. A judgment not from men, but from the creator of life. This life will be fine, though. The 70 years you have here. So before we close, we as believers, we have a role in judgment. But let's examine that role. Because it's too easy to say, do not judge on one side, or we're to judge everything righteously on the other side. Now, I think there's a finer line that Paul makes, a distinction of who believers are allowed to judge. In 1 Corinthians 5, we read Paul's telling of a story of someone who is part of the congregation of Corinth, a man who has slept with his mother-in-law, a man who has joined together a relationship that should remain separate. And in the, the discussion, he says, I've told you not to associate with people of this sort. But then he goes on to clarify, he says, not those people from the world. If you were to, to separate yourselves from the people of the world who are doing this, you'd have nobody. You'd have no ministry. 
just like Yeshua. You can't go to the tax collectors and the adulterers and the prostitutes if you're just going to cut yourself off from everybody and not and judge them. Don't judge the people from the world. They're already under God's judgment. Who are you to judge, though? You are to judge your brothers, and you are to judge them righteously. Be very careful when you enter into judgment with a brother. Let's look back on the quote of Yeshua where he talks about the trying to pick out the speck in your brother's eye while you still have a log in your own eye. We're bad judges. We're awful judges. And if you have not entered into judgment on yourself, do not begin judging your brothers. You have no place for it because the measure that you judge with, you will be judged. But believers are only allowed to judge believers. Everyone else is under God's judgment. We don't judge them. They haven't come under our judgment. They're not part of the community. We can't judge them. We can recognize them for what they are. They're lost. They're hurting. They're wallowing in death. And we can attempt to rescue them from that. But we don't get to judge them. This is something that we see all too often, the Westboro Baptist Church being a epitome of this. But but even in things like something that occurred here recently in Greenville, the transgender story time at the library. I didn't go myself, but someone from our local congregation went to extend an olive branch to that transgender community and say, hey, we love you. We want to see what's best for you. We want to see you escape death. But when she got there, she encountered... She encountered the worst judgmentalness from those who called themselves believers, people who are acting completely contradictory to 1 Corinthians 5, who are judging those people outside of the community, those people still in the world. That's not our role. We don't get to do that. Enter into judgment in your own hearts first. Enter into judgment in your own communities first. Clean the filth out there first. You don't get to judge the world. Vengeance is God's. Judgment is God's when it comes to the world. We have to give up that control. This is so much easier said than done. It is so difficult to give up on our own self-righteousness. It really is. So this is just the beginning of the story of Noah. And it's about judgment. It's about justice. It's about holiness. It's about being judged as righteous or being judged worthy of death. Both are possible. Life or death. You choose. God will give you what you choose. He gives people. God doesn't send people to hell. That's that's their natural trajectory. He attempts to deflect that trajectory back to one of life. The story gives us another foundation that we can use, and it's a foundation for a definition. What is chaos? Chaos is the mixing of items, the mixing of roles, mixing of worship, mixing of kinds, mixing of covenants, mixing of sexes, and more. An order is to be found in properly identifying and operating in those God-ordained separations. One of those areas of separation is the practice of judgment. God 
judges the earth and all that's in it. We must allow him to have that role and not seek that role for ourselves. Our communities, however, must have judges within them to determine the things of God and the things that shouldn't be allowed. And for this, we have to learn discernment. True biblical discernment. Because that fact remains, we're all going to be judged. All of mankind. Every single person that draws breath. You can either accept that judgment now, take on that mantle of being judged by the world, and in the long run, you'll have life. Or you can hold off judgment for now. All judgment. Judgment from God, judgment from men. Although you really won't escape judgment from men. And in the end, you'll be judged harshly by the giver of life. The one who defines the roles. One sets you at odds with the world. The other one sets you at odds with God. But make no mistake, you will be judged. Who does that? Is up to you. So, keep that in mind. Think about that. And I'll see you next time as we continue to develop the pattern of Noah. As we look into the cycle and figure out what it has for us. Always remember, all that you do, in every way, Dereshchai. Seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dereshchai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.